Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have you with us for this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. It's Wednesday, March 3rd. Um, Things are heating up down at the state capitol uh, because they are about to approach one of the most important days on the legislative calendar. Next Monday will be what is known as Crossover Day, which is officially the last day in which legislation can pass in one body and be sent crossover to the other for final passage, uh, which means that there are any number of legislators scrambling to get their bills heard in either the Senate or the House so that they have a chance of passage before the end of the session. Um, And uh, so we're going to talk a lot about what's happening in the legislature. Certainly the election bills continue to be the main focus of conversation. Um, Let me introduce the panel first, and then I want to tell you what I'd really like to do which is spend the very first part of the show uh, talking about the death of the great, great civil rights advocate leader, um, Vernon Jordan, who we learned uh, yesterday morning had passed away the day before. So we will talk a bit about his life and legacy with uh, Greg Bluestein. It's Wednesday, and the AJC political reporter joins us for the Wednesday show. Greg, glad to have you with us today. Good morning. We're also joined today by Professor Alan Abramowitz, Professor of Political Science, as all of you listen to the show regularly know, at Emory University. Alan Abramowitz, we're really always happy to have you. Thanks for being here today. Sure, I'm always glad to be with you. And and Leo Smith. Leo Smith is um, a an activist, Republican. A strategist. He sees himself as somebody who brings together disparate peoples in our state and across the region and does that uh, through his work with his uh, organization Engaged Futures, which uh, uh, Leo has continued work that you began when you were the director of minority uh, outreach at the Georgia Republican Party. How are you, Leo? I'm doing well. It looks like there's a renewed interest in minority voter engagement on the GOP side. <laughs> well, I, you know, I saw Kelly Leffler's op-ed in today's AJC, and I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it today or not, but all I could say about that was it was really interesting. We're also joined by <laughs> State Senator uh, Jen Jordan, uh, the Democrat from District 6, who is fresh out of, Jen, I'm told, a uh, committee meeting uh, this morning. Mm-hmm. Is it a committee meeting we may be interested in knowing anything about or just well, one of those many meetings? You know, higher ed, and like you said, it is a rush to get all these bills out of committee because they have to be out before we meet today at one o'clock. So, you know, lots of early mm-hmm. morning meetings. <laughs> but um, happy to be well, here. Yeah. Oh, it's great to have you here. All right. As I said, I really do, though, want to start by talking about Vernon Jordan. Uh, Vernon Jordan grew up in Atlanta. His family lived in the first federal housing project for African Americans, which was right across the street from Morehouse College. And from those days, he grew to become one of the nation's most important civil rights leader and advisor to presidents, a very, very close friend and advisor to um, President Bill Clinton. And um, I think one of the things, Greg, that I want to start with, I mean, that we can talk about all of his accomplishments. He was the president of the uh, Urban League. He was the field director for the NAACP in Georgia. Um, He had many, many roles that we can bring into this conversation. But I think for people in Georgia, it's interesting that Ernie Suggs, your colleague at the AJC, who did a wonderful uh, obituary today, pointed out that there were two institutions that for his entire life, Vernon Jordan felt extremely close to. One was the Butler Street YMCA, and the other was St. Paul's AME Church on the south side of Atlanta. Now, here's what's important about both of those, Greg. Um, The Butler Street Y was a center of black power, business power, and elected official power for many, many years. It was founded in 1894 
Because in those days, African-American leaders had no place where they could actually meet to talk about the things that were of concern to them. Um, and it, it, it continued as an important center for black, uh, Amer black Georgians for years and years, and, and Vernon Jordan was part of that. St. Paul AME Church has a similar history. It was founded five years after the Emancipation Proclamation, three years after the end of the Civil War, and it too has a legacy of, of being a church that uh, many, many African Americans uh, uh, leaders turn to for uh, worship and comfort. I think it's fascinating, Greg, that those two institutions grounded him and tell us a lot about Atlanta's meaning in his life. Yeah, they were cornerstones in his life and cornerstones in black life in Atlanta and still are uh, uh, to a degree. Um, and he would talk about how he would sing in the children's choir when when he was just when he was just a student uh, how he played basketball at the butler street ymca um how you know the, those were kind of the centers of of his his world in atlanta growing up leo wow yeah you know this this one hits home with me as a young person seeking out uh his way in life the political convergence that i had um, Bill was, uh, in fact, impacted by Vernon Jordan. I was a young person sort of out there being an activist in the church, the black church, uh, St. Paul AME in Blacksburg, Virginia, said, hey, you, you're doing the work of God. You need to come join us. And eventually I would meet being part of this thing that the Free African Society, the AME Church, um, would become um, from the Free African Society. I met Vernon Jordan in Washington, D.C., at the famed Metropolitan AME Church um, with Vashti McKenzie, the first one black woman, first woman bishop in the AME Church of, uh, you know, of this national thing called a connection. And the book that Vernon Jones had in his hand was the same book they gave to me when I wanted to be a missionary, but they're like, men can't be missionaries. You have to be in diaconate orders. You have to become a licensed minister. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So they gave me a black book called The Discipline. And it was really the beginning of my conservative sort of ideology about this Black uplift and empowerment modality of getting together, being a broker for the Black community. And that's what Vernon Jordan was. He was a broker for uplift and empowerment of the Black community using systems of discipline and connection. Um, Senator Jordan, Jen, and, and then Alan Abramowitz, I, I, I want to talk about one aspect of his younger life that's really interesting um, he went to high school uh, at an all-black high school in, in, in Atlanta, David Howard High School, and then went to college at DePauw University in Indiana, despite the fact Morehouse was literally across the street from the public housing project where he grew up. And when he came back to Atlanta in summers, he worked as a driver for a former mayor of Atlanta, Robert Maddox, uh, who became the head of a big, big bank in town. And, and Jen, I want to play you a soundbite. Uh, of Vernon Jordan uh, talking at an event at the Clinton Foundation in February of 2019, in which he talks about what is a famous story about him. When he wasn't working, when he wasn't out driving for Maddox, he would sit in Maddox's really uh, well-stocked library and read books. And one day, Maddox saw him sitting in that library, and Vernon Jordan at the Clinton Foundation tells the story. So one day, I'm sitting in his library, in his chair, reading, because I'm a young intellect, right? And he walks in in his underwear with a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand and a glass in the other, and he walks in, and he said, Vernon, what are you doing in my library? I said, I'm reading, Mr. Maddox. I never had a work for me who can read. I said, I can read, I'm college. And then that night at six o'clock, I'm serving dinner. I'm putting vicious sword that Lizzie was so good at making on the table for his son, who is the vice president of the First National Bank, and his son-in-law, who was the president of the First National Bank. And as I'm serving the vicious sword, he says, children, I have something to tell you. Yes, Pop, Vernon can read. Vernon can read.
uh, Jen Jordan, yes, he did use the N-word um, mm. because he was telling a very raw story. Mm. But it's, I think it's remarkable when I hear that soundbite. Um, we let it play out. He says twice, Vernon can read. Vernon mm. can read. And it tells us so much about the difference between his life and the lives of so many um, of, of the uh, white people who were in power in those days, Jen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's powerful to hear it in his words and in his voice. Um, you know, he was an incredible person. I mean, and even apart from his leadership, kind of in the civil rights movement, um, you know, for me, he is an example of a lawyer um, using his skills um, and using his power and ability to really push for change and reform. Uh, and so he's a model with respect to that. And it's, it's just an incredible loss. Alan, um, your thoughts on, on Vernon Jordan. Well, he was certainly one of the, one of the civil rights, one of the icons of the civil rights movement in, in, in Georgia and in the nation. And of course this past year, we've lost several of those people. Um, you know, so this is, this is another really big loss. And that, that story though is very powerful and it, it, it just reminds us, I think, and we, we shouldn't, that we should never forget <clears throat> what it was really like, uh, you know, it, what life was like in the state and the, and the, and the ra real the deep racial uh, divide that existed and in many ways still exists, but certainly we've come a long way. And, and uh, it, it's just something that's always, always worth remembering. Greg, um, here's an interesting story that Vernon Jordan himself has told. When he finally uh, got uh, graduated from law school and came back to Atlanta, <clears> he could not get uh, he could not uh, get his license from the Georgia Bar. Uh, he was stopped on several occasions from doing that. He ended up having to get licensed by the, by the Arkansas Bar, and it was only later in his career that the Georgia Bar admitted him uh, without his having to take the exams because he'd accomplished so much. But, Greg, I turn to you because you're a University of Georgia graduate to remind people that in 1961, when he came, came back to Atlanta, Jordan joined the law firm of Donald Hollowell, who was another civil rights leader of the 60s, and they filed the lawsuit, which led to the end of segregated admissions policies at UGA. And it was Vernon Jordan who accompanied Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, the first two black students at UGA, as they walked through the gauntlet of angry white people in Athens who did not want them to be part of the university. Yeah, that's why he still has iconic status at UGA. And I'm looking at a picture right now of him of, of him escorting um, uh, Charlene Hunter through. Greg, we just for some reason lost your audio, I'm sorry to say. Mm -hmm. So um, I know Sam Burmistaz will work on it. Uh, Leo, Leo, why don't you pick up while we try mm -hmm. to fix that and then Jen Jordan? Yeah, I think what, what, what uh, Greg was speaking about is that, that him escorting, using the, the opportunity that he had been home to, to live for, he escorts Charlene Hunter, who, by the way, became a journalism major. And by 1963, so the environment, I mean, you know, I mean, this, is, this is Women's History Month. The environment there must have been such that she wanted to hurry up and get out of it because she seemed to have finished her degree in two years by, 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 by report of the news. She graduated in 63. Um, Jen Jordan, uh, that, that uh, integration of uh, University of Georgia was one of the turning points in higher education. You just came from a higher education meeting, uh, and it was one of the turning points for African Americans getting into universities in the state of Georgia, their own state. No, it was a turning point. And, and you know, really... You know, as Greg had indicated, I mean, there is a reason why he is still lauded um, in Athens and on that campus. And honestly, his loss or, or you know, we've lost a number of, of civil rights icons and heroes, but his loss feels um, even more poignant, maybe, in light of what's happening down here at the Capitol 
um, with all of the bills that have been filed really to, to kind of take us back and really to, to suppress the vote of, um, of communities of color, of black people. And so it's, it's a reminder oh. that, that the, the work is not done. Um, thank you for saying that, because in our next segment, we're going to look at what's happening with those uh, bills down there. But, but Greg, uh, now that we've got your audio back, you're more than welcome before we move on to comment on, on the impact on you as a huge, I mean, you were a student much later, but you know what the legacy was like when you were on campus. But as I do, I want to read you a comment from Jonathan Capehart who is a Washington Post columnist who got to know Vernon Jordan very, very well. And I think he made uh, uh, wrote something today in the Washington Post that's really worth pointing out. He said this, It is hard to put into words what Jordan meant to African Americans, especially professionals such as me. He walked in spaces we once never had access to, and because he did, he cleared a path for more of us to follow in his elegant footsteps. Jordan wasn't a passive trailblazer. He always reached back to pull folks with him to push others forward or to guide them through being the only one in the room. Powerful testimony, Greg. Yeah, that's a, such an important part of his legacy is mentoring a generation, two generations really, of, of African-American leaders who followed in his footsteps. And many of them read uh, his memoir, which was titled Vernon Can Read after that famous uh, encounter yeah. incident with, with the former Mayor Maddox. Uh, I want to, before we move on, play one more soundbite from that Clinton Foundation conversation that Vernon Jordan had in uh, 2019. He, he was asked, given all that he'd seen, and given what he, what he was asked whether the, the uh, current presidential administration, that being Donald Trump, was discouraging to him, he felt there'd been real setbacks for African-American progress in the country. He was asked about all that. And let me play for you what he said continued to inspire him. I'm going to remind young people of the words of the song that I've known since I was having Negro History Week in elementary school. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. That was James Weldon Johnson 120 years ago, Jacksonville, Florida. He wrote the words and his brother wrote the music. And in a moment of, of despair and discouragement, I go back to those three verses, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, Thou who has brought us thus far on our way. And therein lies, I think, the inspiration to keep at it. Vernon Jordan, uh, quoting the words of the Negro National Anthem, lift every voice and sing. He will be greatly missed. But uh, we will talk in just a few minutes about how voting rights are being dealt with down at the state capitol. As we do that, though, let's take our first break of the show. And why don't we listen? Amelia Brock found a beautiful version of that song by uh, the great Alicia Keys. Let's listen to it as we take our break. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
The AJC's Greg Bluestein, State Senator Jen Jordan, Professor Alan Abramowitz of Emory University, and Leo Smith, a Republican strategist, uh, join us on today's show. Um, Jen Jordan, we've talked a lot, of course, about what's happening with the election bills down at the Capitol being uh, driven forward by uh, Republicans who want to pass uh, changes to absentee voting, uh, make changes in early uh, voting. Um, where do all of those measures stand right now? I know the House has already passed a major package out. Uh, you've had one in the Senate as well. I, where do you stand on uh, whether or not uh, these bills are likely to go through and to what extent compromises might uh, take away some of the sting that Democrats feel they present? You know, this morning out of the uh, Senate Ethics uh, Committee came out the the Senate's version, um, the Majority Caucus's version of their omnibus voting bill, and that's uh, Senate Bill um, 241. And that is the one that actually um, basically prohibits or, or takes away no excuse absentee balloting. Um, so it's pretty, um, I mean, it's a pretty tough bill. So that got out. There's some other bills, uh, you know, multiple ones that have gotten out of Senate ethics. I guess we're going to see what actually gets put on the floor um, in the Senate. You know, we're, we're bumping up against, you know, a pretty hard stop in terms of crossover day. Uh, but I would think that 241 absolutely makes it. And the problem is that with all of these bills that come out of ethics, um, the Republicans always do something called engrossment, which means there can't be an amendment on the floor. Um, so if there's a mistake in a bill, if a word is misspelled, I mean, simple stuff like that, um, no one can do a darn thing about it because they just don't want anyone to have the ability um, to actually make positive changes uh, to a bill that's in front in front of us for a vote. Eleanor Bramowitz, you're one of the uh, real masters at looking at voting trends, at looking at demographics of voters and that sort of thing. How do you, as you watch what's happening at the state <laughs> capitol right now, what do you see as the underlying uh, uh, reasons why Republicans are working so hard on these measures? Well, I don't think there's any question that the main thing that is driving uh, this in Georgia and, and in other states as well, Arizona, Pennsylvania, you know, we're, see, we're seeing this push to restrict access to the ballot, to restrict mail voting, for example, across the country. Uh, and, and it's all in response to what happened in the 2020 election. And it's in response to the fact that uh, Republicans lost those elections, um, lost the presidential election, and, and then in Georgia, lost the Senate runoff election. Uh, you know, th these are provisions that have been in the law for, in many cases, in some cases, many years. Uh, automatic voter registration, uh, no excuses, absentee voting. These are provisions that were put in place by Republicans, okay? Uh, and they had no problem with any of these things until the Democrats, you know, took advantage of those provisions <clears throat> to encourage their supporters to uh, use absentee voting, um, to use early voting, and, and, and then to win won the presidential election and then won the runoff election. So uh, they're responding to this drive that's being led now, you know, by the former president. Um, and, and, and again, you know, let's keep in mind uh, the underlying motivation for this is to try to undo the results of the election, try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, and it's also a response to the big lie. OK, that's what is behind this. It's the big lie, the lie that Democrats stole the election from Donald Trump. Um, you know, we, we heard that over and over again. The president, the ex-president repeated it again in his speech at CPAC. Uh, and we're hearing it from other conservative spokesmen and, and, and Republic, some Republicans. And, and, uh, and, and I think it's clear that, that this is an effort to appease the Trump base, to appease, appease the former president, and, you know, to try to uh, make it more difficult for Democrats to win elections in the future. 
Um, Greg, I don't have the exact number uh, on hand, but but uh, uh, we know that an enormous number of uh, Georgia Republican legislators supported the Texas lawsuit that attempted to overturn the results of the Georgia presidential election, along with a couple of other states. And of course, the Republican congressional delegation in Georgia supported that. Uh, lawsuit as well. So it, it, it's not surprising that we would now see efforts. Uh, of course, those lawsuits, that lawsuit failed for a variety of reasons, but it isn't surprising that this is the next step in how Georgia Republicans are reacting to the presidential election. And as Ellen points out, the Senate runoff election. Yeah, and that's the rub here. And look, yeah, there were dozens of state lawmakers that supported that Texas lawsuit and other efforts to invalidate the election results, including Georgia's two U.S. senators at the time, Purdue and Leffler, both backed that lawsuit. And when you hear Republicans keep on talking about restoring confidence in the vote, what they're not saying is that they need to restore that confidence because for the last few years, even before he was elected president, uh, Donald Trump was denigrating mail-in ballots. And then, and then in the run-up to 2020, of course, he was promoting, even before the vote, um, uh, falsehoods, lies about um, election voting machines and about mail-in ballots to the point where I was interviewing voters who would support him, who genuinely just said, I don't know how to vote because the mail-in ballot, Trump and his supporters are talking you know, negatively about the mail-in ballot, and they're talking negatively about computer voting machines. How do I vote? You know, <laughs> so... Um, that has kind of infected the system. And when Republicans talk about restoring uh, integrity and confidence, what they're not saying is it's their own parties uh, promoted those views for so long. Um, and look, there are some changes that I think, and, and Senator Jordan uh, sponsored one of them. There's some changes that both parties can agree on. Um, but when it comes to restricting ballot access, limiting weekend voting, closing that window of time to register, but all those other issues, um, there's no way that we in the media can say anything otherwise that is restricting access to the ballot. That is that is restricting the vote. You know, Leo, you can't help but wonder about the law of unintended consequences here. It, the more that you, I get that maybe there's, you know, the Democrats certainly believe that this is an effort to suppress a largely minority Democratic votes. But in the long run, as you reduce the access to the to the vote, it, the easiest ways to vote, uh, you have no way of knowing what kind of an impact that might have on Republican voters as well as Democrats, Leo. Indeed, indeed. I mean, you know, some of these laws were actually created in a way that actually advantage Republicans when it comes to absentee ballots. You know, it's a real stark contrast to the messaging that we use in order to raise money, which in this case, this messaging can also mobilize another couple million dollars for Stacey Abrams and you know, all the voter suppression messaging that's going out there to raise money for that side. So in a way, the Republican strategy here bothers me because we're awakening a giant that was already awake and saying, let's become a double giant. And then, you know, we look at CPAC, for instance, that we just happened this last weekend, they actually had a session, both continuing the lie about fake fraud, but they also had a session on how to take advantage of absentee ballot and mobilize people for application. So in other words, they're recognizing that they've been somewhat lazy as political consultants, not using some of the same methodology that, you know, uh, that the Democrats have been using. And I say, Republicans, we can work harder. We can, we can do this the right way. And I'm happy to see that 531 uh, didn't, uh, you know, the the, the Sunday restriction uh, didn't doesn't look like it's going to pass. I'm happy to see that. Uh, Jen, uh, talk about your uh, uh, bill as, as an example of what you think are are reforms that you believe should be made. Yeah. So right now, under Georgia law, local elections offices can't process absentee ballots uh, prior to election day. And we saw, I mean, millions over, I think it, maybe it was 1.6 million people voted uh, via absentee. It may have been more. I'm not sure what the final number was. Um, but when you're talking about, especially some of these larger counties having to process these absentee ballots, um, they have to wait until 7 a.m. of Election Day. I think that's what we saw in November in terms of why there was such a delay in terms of getting uh, the results in. And that's what allowed some of these conspiracy theories um, to grow and, and to fester. And so it just makes sense, made sense to me that to tell them that they could go ahead and start doing it a couple of weeks 
uh, before election day so that they could be ready to go um, when they needed to tabulate at the end of the day once the polls close. Do you have any reason to think your bill won't pass? Well, I am a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Elder Bromowitz, weigh in on all this. Well, I want to add one other thing uh, in response to these proposals, particularly the ones to restrict uh, absentee voting, to take away no excuses absentee voting, uh, to do away with drop boxes, you know, things like that. Um, So what my own research on the 2020 elections uh, shows, I think, is that it's not likely to work. Um, If the goal is to uh, help Republicans, uh, candidates, uh, and make it more difficult for Democrats, uh, what we know is that um, when you uh, when your message to voters is we don't want you to vote, um, we're going to make it harder for you to vote, um, you get pushback um, and you're going to get a reaction on the part of uh, voting rights groups on uh, Democrats who uh, make additional efforts to make sure that their voters get to the polls, however, uh, that uh, whatever is required to do that. Um, but I found across the country that uh, that regardless of the use of absentee voting, and there are big variations among states, Georgia was not by far from the highest in the use of mail voting or absentee voting. Uh, we were kind of you know, below the average, actually. Uh, and there were states where 80 to 90 percent of the votes were cast by absentee ballot in this election. But actually, when you control for how those same states have voted in past elections, the use of absentee voting, the extent to which voters cast ballots by absentee ballot, had absolutely no effect on the outcome of the election, none. Um, so uh, the, the myth that the mail voting in 2020 was something that worked to the advantage of Democrats is just not supported by the evidence. And I don't think going forward that restricting absentee voting is going to benefit Republicans. All right. I'm fascinated by that. And it also speaks to this notion of potential law of unintended consequences here. Uh, Greg Boosting, just before we came on the air, because you never stop working, uh, you filed an interesting story uh, about uh, Governor Kemp, who was asked in another media interview, you'll explain what that was, I don't remember, uh, about how he felt about all these bills that are uh, being proposed, are flying around. Uh, And he was fairly noncommittal. I guess he was talking to the conservative radio host, Hugh Hewitt. uh, And he didn't really want to commit to supporting all of these measures, did he? No, he he hasn't. I mean, aside from coming out very strongly in January for ID, some sort of ID verification on absentee ballots, the governor hasn't really released any public outlines, public contours um, to Republican lawmakers of what he would sign and what he wouldn't sign. He's he's left kind of the sausage making of the legislative process. Um, to, to, to state lawmakers, and it's a strategic move to stay out of that, you know, and it's his decision. Um, Governor Deal would sometimes get involved, sometimes wouldn't, and he's done kind of the same thing in this case, but he's coming to a point very soon where he can't do that anymore, where he can't kind of duck these questions, whether they be public or private. Um, and what I'm told behind the scenes is that he's concerned about new limits for at-will mail, uh, for, for no-excuse mail-in voting, would hurt both parties, just as was Professor Obama was just saying, and he's also no fan of measures to end automatic voter registration, which is no surprise because that's an initiative he expanded, he pushed exactly. to expand while he was Secretary mm-hmm. of State. So mm-hmm. those are two issues that he is he is going to apparently draw a line on. He hasn't done so publicly, but behind the scenes he already is. Either way, though, I expect to hear more from him after crossover day when we have, um, you know, some sort of measures going forward. Of course, remember, all these measures are very likely to be rewritten, you know, 30 minutes before the final gavel is is, is, is hammered on sine die, unfortunately. Um, but at least we'll have um, we'll have some more uh, contours of that debate going forward. Uh, you know, what's interesting about uh, what part of what Greg just said, Leo, is that not only did Governor Kemp, as Secretary of State, encourage the expansion. Mm-hmm of uh, automatic voter registration. He also pointed to the expanded voter rolls as a response to the voting rights groups who complained about vo- about uh, purges of voters in the 2018 election cycle. And he said, no, we got more people registered to vote than ever before. And part of that is because, of course, of automatic voting uh, registration. 
I, I know from a personal fact that um, Governor Kemp, when Secretary of State, was very proud of the automatic registration piece. He was very proud of that. Um, I know for, from a personal fact that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's really believed in uh, voter access with integrity, and he's very proud that we have Sunday um, activity related to voting as well. Um, he just thinks that we all ought to use those methodologies uh, much more, and that the Secretary of State's office has pointed out many times that Georgia has a lot of things implemented by Secretary of State that are Republican that have been lauded uh, across the nation, even by Brennan Center commenting sometimes about some of the great things that Georgia is doing compared to other states. Um, Jen Jordan, I, I, if I can, I want to share with you a, a post we got. Amelia has pointed this out to me and thinks it's something uh, that we ought to talk about. And I think she's right. We, we saw a Facebook post the other day from a listener named Shirley Randall. And what she essentially says is, I wish the legislature would focus on things that would actually help Georgians. And she lists some of them. Mm -hmm. uh, technology for rural regions of the state. Uh, support for rural hospitals, increased education funding. And I'm curious, uh, you know, there are others who say, why don't they work on other kinds of issues? I'm curious what your constituents talk to you about as issues that matter to them and, and to what extent this election uh, 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 war that's going on down there is the most important thing to them. Yeah, I mean, my constituents are really not happy with all of the bills that are being filed. Um, and I've probably had more emails and more calls um, than I've had in a really long time with respect to uh, particular legislation. They want us to work on the stuff that, that matters. I mean, we're, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, we are still at a point where we have one of the lowest, um, you know, rates of administration of the vaccine. I mean, it's all of these things that, you know, how are we going to get teachers back in the schools? How are we going to get mm -hmm. schools open? There are some really incredibly hard questions that, that need to be answered and problems we need to be working on. And instead, we're passing bills like, for example, out of the Senate came that we wanted to do away with daylight savings time. And, you know, just I, I just, you know, I'm kind of like, we have real problems. People are dying. People are sick. You know, we're in the middle of, of an economic crisis to some extent. And it's like we really should focus on that instead of, you know, kind of playing around with this stuff. Alan? Well, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, with with that. Um, but let me add something else, which is that um, a lot of this effort to restrict access to the polls in response to the 2020 election results and the runoff election results, is really, I, I think, uh, kind of ignoring what fundamentally is going on in the state. Um, what is really driving the political shifts in Georgia uh, is not so much changes in the voting laws. It's changes in the population. It's demographic change. Uh, it's the growth of Metro Atlanta. Uh, it's the dramatic, really dramatic shift of many of the suburban counties surrounding the city of Atlanta uh, over the last eight to 12 years away from the Republican Party and toward the Democrats that began before Donald Trump uh, was elected, but certainly continued uh, during Trump's presidency. Counties like Cobb County, Gwinnett County, uh, uh, that, that were stalwart Republican counties only eight years ago, uh, now went by double-digit margins for Joe Biden and then by even bigger margins for the two Democratic Senate candidates. There's nothing you can do with changing the voting laws that's going to alter what's fundamentally going on here in terms of migration to the state. The growth is happening in Metro Atlanta. That has profound consequences for the politics of Georgia, for both parties. Um, but it's really what's driving the shift, and it's why Georgia, in many ways, is now the, kind of the center of the political universe in this country. Um, it is we are the premier swing state of all the swing states right now. Uh, and that's why we're getting so much attention. But these shifts are going to continue. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely nothing that can be done in the way of changing the uh, changing the voting laws that's going to stop that. You know, Greg, that rings a bell for you because you wrote a piece on just that uh, 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 very recently. Let me just uh, to add to what Alan said, Alan forwarded to me a 
column uh, from Tom Baxter at the Supporter Report, he uh, looked at an NBC study. NBC looked at every county and parish in the country, and they found that the that Rockdale County, Henry County, and Gwinnett County in Georgia had swings toward the Democrats of t- almost 25%, and they were the top three counties in the country uh, in terms of swings. And Greg, your piece talks about how the power base in terms of the electorate in this state has shifted from rural counties to those metro counties and the others that Alan mentioned. Yeah, and we're seeing that play out not just on the Democratic side with these Democratic wins across the metro Atlanta suburbs, but also Republicans, too. Um, there are more Republican constitutional officers in Georgia now. The only the only Republican constitutional officer from south of the, 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 the fall line is the Nat line, I should say, is uh, is Richard Woods, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's just there's there's been that shift that is playing out in the legislature in, in various ways, um, whether it be the Republican pushback on voting rights uh, to restrict access to the ballot, whether it be um, uh, fewer people in the legislature who have direct you know connection with the farming industry that's still the, the state's number one industry, and uh, the very unique thing is for the first time in decades, the top Democratic officials in Washington who preside over agricultural policy, the top officials in Washington who preside over agricultural policy are Atlanta Democrats. Um, mm. uh, and, 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 you know, they're voting up on it. It's not, I'm not, not saying they're not equipped for this at all because they are, uh, but it's just been a, a, a completely different um, regime now. Um, and again, it's playing out with the voting rights. It's playing out with, with, with the legislation that we're talking about right now. Um, as sort of a gut reaction, as a as a knee jerk reaction, maybe from Republicans who a have to counter what their base believes, right? And our and the AJC poll shows uh, from a few weeks ago shows that a significant number of Republicans believe Trump's big lie about widespread voter fraud, um, and and b you know feeling like the only way they can some of these lawmakers feel like the only way they can win statewide or, or win their offices back is to um, is to restrict ballot access. And I've heard that from, from candidates who are thinking about running statewide. We can't run unless we, we make changes to the voting regime. Wow. Leo, let me give you the last word before we got to get to a break. Demographics are our destiny, but how we deal with demographics don't have to be without innovation. Charles Blow, the New York Times author, the, the columnist, is pushing people to sweat to the South. They're saying, let's go own Georgia. And so we're just going to have to deal with the fact that they're going to have migration back to the South, and we're going to have to know how to deal with that. Uh, thank you, Leo Smith. Uh, the reverse migration, you know, we've got to uh, take that up as a show on Political Rewind because it's really, really uh, fascinating from a historical perspective and in terms of current politics in the state. Let's get to our final break. We'll be right back with more. I'd like to do kind of a lightning round on a couple of other pieces of legislation that are worthy, I think, of our attention, although anybody on the panel is welcome to tell me if I think they're not going anywhere. Uh, Jen Jordan, uh, Republican Wes Cantrell has essentially has introduced and it's passed out of committee what's essentially a new school voucher bill. It passed narrowly out of the House Education Committee. Uh, it's a p- program that could end up costing like it's going to start at twenty five million. It could grow to two hundred fifty million. And it essentially uh, will allow parents to uh, send their kids, uh, they think, to private schools. Vouchers have always been controversial. Republicans push for them repeatedly. It's interesting they're back again this year, Jen. Yeah, it's a bad idea. I mean, um, we actually have another we have another voucher bill on the floor um, that came out of Senate, uh, the Senate Education Committee, and it's going to be voted on today. I mean, there's a small smallish growing contingency of Republicans that push these every year. Um, You know, if we can't fund public education at appropriate levels and actually provide an adequate and quality public education to the kids in the state per our constitutional um, obligations, then we sure as heck shouldn't be uh, shoveling money to the private schools. You know, Leo, one of the one of the things that always comes up in this is that it isn't as if uh, the voucher money or whatever you want to call it, I know Republicans don't like that word, uh, is going to allow 
uh, parents in, say, uh, underserved public uh, schools to send their kids to Westminster or Pace mm -hmm. Academy uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, so there seems there is sort of an illusion that this bill can maybe give more to those families in terms of the kind of private education they want than they'll really get. You know, actually, Bill, I would, I would, I would examine that a little bit deeper. I know for me, I, my kids were in private school at the high school school. Now they're at Westminster. Um, that voucher would really make a big difference. To, to my family's oh, ability, okay. our ability to survive. It, I think a lot more people who are trying to reach up, the Vernon Joneses of the world, the Martin Luther King children who went to private school, went to Galloway, those things would really help stabilize a black middle-class mobility. Um, and I think that's really important. The other thing here is these bills are now taking a, a new significance because of the coronavirus. And what we see, I sit on two charter school boards, one in uh, the senator's district, uh, Atlanta Classical Academy, and uh, great school, school of excellence. We see the racial gap decreasing there um, because of the way that education is happening there. Now, Kennesaw, North, North, North Society Classical, we have a new school coming. So when we look at what's happening with people leaving the public schools, public charter schools even, they're leaving because they're closed, because they don't have any flexibility to deal with the needs of the kids. That's a big issue now. And, and so this thing now takes a new significance because parents are trying to figure out how can they make sure their kids have educational resilience. Okay, so there you hear the two sides of it. Jen, you want to do mm -hmm. a quick response? Yeah, I mean, look, I get what Leo's saying, but I go back to if, if, a, if a public school is not serving its children, if these children are underserved, then we should be focusing on getting that school to the place where it actually can provide the services that it needs to. And, and while I have many great private schools in, in my district, they're not exact, exactly known unless like your skank or the speech school for actually servicing children with disabilities or special needs. Okay, we'll watch to see if those bills go anywhere. They typically don't, but uh, mm -hmm. every year is a new year at the Georgia legislature. Mm -hmm. Greg Lustein, and then I want to get you in on this, Alan Abramowitz. Um, we now have a Democratic candidate to run against Marjorie Taylor Greene up in the 14th District. Uh, Greg, you wrote the other day about um, a man named Marcus Flowers. He's a U.S. Army veteran. He's a political novice, but he's decided that he is going to take on the formidable task in a ruby red district of trying to beat Marjorie Taylor Greene. But what's interesting about it is that you've looked at some numbers which suggest that not everybody is excited about the way Marjorie Taylor Greene has begun her tenure up in the U.S. House. Yeah, there was a polling, uh, a, a poll out by a left-leaning out, uh, outlet um, that showed that there is some cause for concern for Marjorie Taylor Greene for 2022 election, um, I'm I kind of echo a lot of state Democratic leaders who are who are pretty skeptical about any chance that a Democrat really has to flip this district, which is one of the biggest Republican strongholds uh, district congressional districts on the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, we also don't know what the district's going to look like, and that's that's one of the most fascinating parts of this mm -hmm. entire. Anytime we talk about any of these races, whether it be for sixth district and seventh district in Atlanta suburbs or or this district out in Northwest Georgia, we don't know what it'll look like. And we certainly also know that even if Republican leaders tried to draw Marjorie Taylor Greene out of the district, she'd just run anyway because she didn't live in the 14th when she started running a year ago. So that's, so that's a fascinating part about all this. Alan, Greg brings up a great point. Now that we know the U.S. Census is not going to report out until the end of September, it yeah. really creates problems for when we're going to see the state of Georgia, like every other state, draw new district lines. It's going to right. be really a challenge. Right. Everything's being pushed back. Uh, and, and it means it's going to be an even more rushed uh, and probably even more hyper-partisan process than it normally is, which is which is always very, 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 very partisan. But that particular district, you know, I don't see any way that you can redraw the lines in a way that would really create a competitive uh, a district in that right. part of the state. Um, the real question, I think, is whether there'll be a serious Republican challenger who will run against Marjorie Taylor Greene in the primary. Um, I would think that she would be potentially vulnerable to a challenge from a somewhat more of a mainstream conservative uh, candidate. Look, you're going to get a conservative Republican out of that district, but that doesn't mean that it has to be someone who's a, you know, a QAnon 
uh, conspiracy theorists uh, and some some who calls for who makes you know veiled death threats against against Democratic leaders. So uh, I think a lot of Republicans are embarrassed by her and and, and would 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 really like to see her uh, out. So so let's see if, if there's a serious challenge in the primary in 2022. Okay, okay. Uh, Jen, jump in. Uh, we've only got two minutes, but what if Donald yeah. Trump endorses her? Well, he, he already has. I mean, look, the thing mm-hmm. with Marcus Flowers is, and he's a great guy. Y'all should y'all should look at his ad. Y'all should follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, really, what we saw in terms of the presidential and statewide is that it's important to have really good candidates running in these districts, even the ones that are gerrymandered specifically for Republicans to win, because statewide it impacts so that we that Democrats lose less. And we know that if we lose less in these districts that are dark red, that can actually take us over the top. And I think that's what happened with uh, with Joe Biden. All right. We're just about out of time on the show. Leo, very, very quickly, if Donald Trump endorses Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm-hmm. despite what Alan Abramowitz paints as a scenario mm-hmm. for a more moderate Republican, I don't know how she loses up there. Well, the medical doctor who ran against her, you know, came in at the last minute, he is leaving uh, his powder dry, he is saying that it's possible that he might run again. And if he called me up, I would work for him, no doubt. <laughs> Leo Smith gets the last word in today's show. Leo Smith, Greg Bluestein, State Senator Jen Jordan, Professor Alan Abramowitz. That was a terrific conversation. Thank you all so much for being part of Political Rewind today. We're back, of course, uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow's one of those matchups we always enjoy. Mary Margaret Oliver on the Democratic side, her pal Edward Lindsay on the Republican side, Andre Gillespie will be here as well, as will Kevin Riley. So we'll see you all for that show uh, tomorrow. Thank you, Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger, and Samber Mastaz for your work on today's show. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and wear a mask. Bye-bye, everybody.